Let's turn this morning to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5 as we continue our studies in Paul's epistle to the Romans. Romans chapter 5. We'll be looking this morning at verses 2 through 4. But we will read from verse 1 to get the sense of the text. Romans chapter 5. We're going to read verses 1 through 4. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces Hope. Last week we heard the Apostle Paul opening up the glories and blessings that result from God's justifying grace toward believing sinners. Therefore, having been justified by faith, says Paul, we have peace with God. Literally, we are having peace with God. Not only is it that we have peace with God, but we have access to the grace of God in which we stand. Now in the last clause of verse 2 and following verses, Paul continues to spell out for us the glorious effects of God's justifying grace toward those who trust in Christ as Savior. So a third blessing of justification by faith that's found in the last clause of verse 2 is confident assurance of future glory that in consequence of our having been declared righteous by God, one of the glories ensuing from that state of affairs is that we are having confident assurance of future glory. We read and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And here we see it is very clear, clearly suggested in our text that God desires that as his people, we who are saved be a people of joy and hope. And this is very important because there are many who seem to believe that becoming a Christian spells an automatic sentence to a lifetime of gloom and boredom, especially as they consider what they'll have to give up if ever they should come to Christ as Savior. And let me say that nothing could be further from the truth. The fact is, if God so loved us, listen, if God so loved us that he gave his only begotten son to die for our sins to redeem us, then that certainly speaks volumes to the effect that he's very much concerned about our total well-being. And this is not just mere pious thought. This is actually asserted in the word of God. Because Paul, in Romans chapter 8 and verse 32, declares, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely or graciously give us all things? And surely among the all things with which he has given Christ to those whom he has saved, and which is way more satisfying and fulfilling than any earthly attraction or pleasure is joy. This joy is more than happiness. You ask, what is the difference between joy and happiness? 
happiness, we say, is circumstantial. That is to say, happiness depends on happenings. Which means that if things happen not to be going right as far as one is concerned, then one will not be happy. Joy, however, is independent of circumstances. Joy is not dependent on having things. There are many people who imagine that in order to be joyful, they must have things. They must have stuff. And I want to say that joy is not found in satisfying the cravings and lusts of the flesh. It is not in having plenty food. It is not in having an abundance of drink because the word of God declares in Romans chapter 14 and verse 17, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Here's the point. Joy is found in God. Joy is found in having Christ as one Savior. Joy, of which the Word of God speaks, stems from right relationship with God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all of whom have to do with our salvation. And hence, Paul is going to say later on in Romans chapter 5, verse 11, we rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation, which means this, that there can be no real joy, no genuine joy, apart from a saving relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. So based on the truth that Christian joy is rooted in God, note again in verse 4 how Paul speaks of the blessings of joy that God gives to guilty, hell-deserving sinners as a result of his saving, justifying grace. Paul says, we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. The Word of God teaches that before we were saved, before we came to Christ, We had no peace. What we had was misery. We had no peace. We had no joy. We had nothing but misery. Romans chapter 3 and verse 16. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 12. We were without hope and without God in the world. And with Christ our Savior, we have far more than enough reasons for which to rejoice in God our Savior. For with Christ in us, the hope of glory, Colossians chapter 1, verse 27, we are assured of a future prospect with him in heaven. Listen, this is not mere pie in the sky. People say, well, that is pie in the sky by and by when we die. This is a fact. Here's a point. There is a judgment to come. There is a wrath from which we must flee. And the word of God teaches that there is salvation in Jesus Christ. And having come to him, we are assured of an eternity of glory with him in heaven. The question is, what is the nature of this hope that the Bible speaks of? And to begin with, let me say here that this hope is not wishful thinking. It's like somebody is saying, well, what do you hope for? What are you really asking? What, do you, what are you wishing for? It's not wishful thinking. This hope is not some kind of vague, nebulous, anticipation or what we might call cautious optimism. It's like somebody says, well, you know, are you going to have a good time today? Are you going to work hard today? I hope so. The hope of which the Bible speaks then is not one of uncertainty, but one what we might call assured confidence. Confident assurance. Biblical hope 
is a firm, assured expectation. It is a firm, assured expectation and conviction that what God has promised will most certainly, will most definitely come to pass. So here's the point. Biblical hope is different. You take up the dictionary, you look for hope. You don't go there to find the meaning of biblical hope. Biblical hope means confident, assured expectation. Biblical hope is hope, which according to Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 19, is sure and steadfast. It is hope that inspires courage, because here's how the Apostle Paul speaks of his hope that he has. He says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 verse 12, since we have such hope, we are very bold. Now let's define this glory of God in which a Christian hopes. What is this glory of God. Paul says we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. The question is, what is this glory of God? And essentially, the glory of God, we could say, is the magnificence, the infinite greatness of God's perfection, of all that he is in his person, and of all that he does by his power. That essentially is God's glory. God's glory is his excellence, is his magnificence, is his majesty on display. It is the expression of all the sum of his perfections. And this glory of God, which a believer in Christ joyously anticipates, will be put on display, the word of God tells us, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We read of this glory in Matthew chapter 24, verse 30, where we are told that at his return, he will be seen, that is our Lord Jesus, will be seen coming on the clouds of heaven with power and with great glory. Titus chapter 2, verse 13, refers to this Hope of glory, this coming glory of God, as follows our blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, here's the wonderful truth about this coming glory of God. You say, well, what is it about this coming glory of God that we're so eager and joyful about? Let me say this. Scripture teaches that his people, God's people, that, and who are God's people? God's people are those who are saved by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, those who have trusted him as their Savior. The Word of God teaches that as his people, we will participate in that coming glory of God. You ask, what in the world are you talking about? Because didn't God actually say in Isaiah chapter 42 and verse 8 that his glory he will not share with another? God declares, I am God, there is none else, and my glory I will not share with another. What is this thing you are saying, Patrick, that we are going to share in God's glory? Well, here's what it does not mean. It doesn't mean, as Mormons teach, that we are going to actually become gods. It doesn't mean that we are going to take on the essence of deity, that we are going to take on the essence and likeness of God. Not at all. In fact, that is the heights of blasphemy. The fact is, there is that glory of God, beloved, that only God himself possesses. It is intrinsic to none other but God, and that glory, we would say, is incommunicable. That glory cannot be shared with any other human being. And yet, 
The Word of God does assert, the Word of God does teach, the Word of God does declare that God will someday glorify his people with his own glory. That by virtue of our being savingly and redemptively united with the Lord Jesus, we're talking about that in Sunday school this morning. What does it mean to be in Christ? To be in Christ means to be united with him. It means to share his very life. It means that we become heirs of God, joint heirs with Christ. And the point is this, that by virtue of our being savingly, redemptively united with the Lord Jesus, by virtue of our being in Christ, we're going to share this glory of God in the following respects. Number one, this physical body of ours. Think of it. This physical body of ours. Subject to all the ravages of sin, to diseases, to pain, to suffering, and yes, coming death will be, according to Philippians chapter 3 verse 21, transformed to be like his glorious body. That's what the word of God teaches. In fact, this evidently was what the Apostle John was referring to when he wrote in 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, concerning the children of God. He says this, Beloved, now are we the children of God, and it does not yet appear what we are going to be, but we know that when he appears, we are going to be like him, for we shall see him as he is. According to Romans chapter 8, verse 18, this glory of God will be revealed to us. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 4, Paul writes to the Colossian Christians, he says this, When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Again, he refers to this glory of God, which believers in Christ will share. In Romans chapter 8, verse 17, he says this, If children then heirs, heirs of God, join heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be what? Glorified with him. All in all, here's the point. This glory of God to which we look, to which we, in which we hope as Christians, this glory of God which we anticipate as the people of God, what essentially is it at the end of the day? It is this. It will be God himself on display in all his magnificence, in all his glory, in all his power. Now I want us to stop and think of this for a moment. That ever since the fall of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, humankind has been fearful and have stood in terror at the glory of God. Remember Adam and Eve? After they disobeyed God, what happened? They heard the voice of the Lord walking in the cool of the garden. And what happened? They hid themselves. Oh, my friends, I could give you many examples from the Old Testament, but fast forward to the prophet Isaiah. Here was the godly prophet Isaiah who said he saw the glory of the Lord. And he says, woe is me, for I'm undone from a man of unclean lips, and that mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Invariably in the Old Testament when people encountered the presence of God and even the, what we would call the veil glory of God, sometimes what reaction did they have? They fell as it were dead. That's the glory of God. What does the Bible tell us about the glory of God in Romans chapter 3 verse 23? For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. 
Remember back in Romans chapter 1, how does, does sinful humanity treat the glory of God? They turned it into the image of corruptible things. They polluted the knowledge and glory of God. And here it is, the word of God tells us that having been redeemed by the grace of God, in fact, one of the signs, one of the signs of God's work at grace in our hearts as his people is that we are anticipating, we are looking forward to this coming glory of God. It's nothing to be fearful of. Why? Because God, the Bible tells us in Colossians chapter 1, verse, somewhere in verse 10 thereabout, he says this, he has made us fit. He has made us qualified to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light, in glory. We think of how fallen humanity throughout the ages has dreaded the awesome presence of God, but praise God in Jesus Christ, this once dreaded reality of the glory of God has become for the Christian a prospect of joyous hope, of joyous assured expectation. But the question will be asked, and this is where we're going to come to the second main point of our text this morning, what of the trials and tribulations of this present life? What of the hardships and rigors through which a Christian has to go through? You see, there's a kind of Christianity today that we would call a triumphalist kind of Christianity. It's a kind of Christianity that majors on what is known as dominion theology. And the idea here is this. It is stressed that we are, we are kings and priests, and that is true. But here is the downside of that teaching. Here is the error of that teaching. The Christian is not to know anything of sickness. The Christian is not to know anything of poverty. The Christian is to know nothing of hardships. And Paul is going to say here, look, yes, we are sitting pretty. We have peace with God. We are having a passage to God. We are anticipating the coming glory of God. But what of this present sufferings? How do trials and tribulations square with the glories of saving grace in Christ? Somebody will ask, aren't these two realities at odds with each other? And so this brings us to the fourth blessing related to the glories of our having been justified by faith, which is this, that in consequence of our being justified, declared righteous by God, we have, watch this, a clarified perspective on present sufferings. We have a clarified perspective of present suffering. We are, Paul suggests, in a position, verses 3 to 5, to appreciate and understand God's purpose for our sufferings. Having stated in verse 2 that we, that is believers in Christ, hope in the glory of God, he then says in verse 3, here's what he says, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. We rejoice in hope of the glory of God, but not only that, we rejoice in our sufferings. The Greek word that's rendered here as suffering, in other versions as tribulations, was a word that was used in ancient Greece for the pressing or crushing of grapes. The Greek word thlipsis. And what we see here, my friends, is that suffering is pictured here in the word of God in terms of one's undergoing Pressure. Perhaps you are at such a place this morning, you are in difficult, adverse circumstance. You feel, as it were, pressed down. 
and hemmed in on all sides with no seeming way out. That is what the Bible here describes as tribulations, thlipsis, the pressing or crushing of grapes, as that word was used for. You're under the pressure of some stubborn illness, the pressure of some unusually strong and persistent temptation, the pressure of rejection because of your stance as a Christian. And what you need to understand, my friends, I'll begin by saying this, what you need to understand, if you're a believer in Christ and you are passing through the mill of suffering, let me say this, that suffering for the believer is not necessarily, watch my language, Suffering for the believer is not necessarily a sign of God's displeasure. Having said that, I would hasten to say this, it well might be. For example, if a believer is suffering, and one of the things the believer wants to do in times of suffering is to do what? First of all, self-examination. Why am I going through what I'm going through? And the Word of God teaches that when the believer is suffering, part of the reason the believer suffers of that, we don't have time to go into all the various reasons as to why Christians suffer. But here's the point. One of the reasons God allows Christians to go through times of sufferings. Scripture tells us because the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives, Here's what he says, if you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. If you're a believer, not walking in fellowship with God, doing your own thing, living in sin, expect suffering in the form of chastisement. If you're not a Christian and you're going through a season of suffering, think of it as God seeking to get your attention, to draw you to himself, to repentance, to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But back to our text. And here we find that no sooner does Paul speak of the Christian rejoicing in the glories and privileges of salvation than he right away declares not only that, but we rejoice in our suffering. Somebody says, well, did Paul really just say that? We rejoice in our sufferings? How is that possible? Who does that? And I can hear Paul say, oh, yes. Though wonderfully and happily saved in Jesus Christ and destined for glory, the Christian is not insulated from suffering. What a direct opposite to popular teaching and notions in our time. Because there's a strand of teaching today that says, look, when you come to Christ, your problems will be over. Indeed, many a Christian has been duped by the popular teaching which says that coming to Christ will resolve and remove their problems. Come to Jesus and every little thing is going to be all right. Now, let me say this, and here's where we need to do balanced teaching. Question, if one comes to Christ in the midst of trouble and is expecting God to deliver him or her from trouble, coming to Christ for salvation... Can God actually save that person out of that troubling situation? Of course. But here's the point. We still have a problem because even if he gets you out of that situation, based on what the Word of God teaches, there are more troubles to come. Throughout the Word of God, the believer is told, the believer is instructed in the Word of God that suffering will be inevitable, that suffering is part and parcel of what it means to be Christian. 
that coming into the blessings of peace with God and access to God offers no assurance of a blissful, flurry bed of ease, and it will not shield us from bitter, painful experiences. Note, for example, Luke records in Acts chapter 14, 21, 22, after Paul and Barnabas had made many disciples, after many had come to faith under their preaching, faith in Christ. The Bible tells us they returned to Lystra, to Iconium, and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them in the faith, and saying, stop there for a moment. If you were encouraging new disciples, new believers in Christ, what would you tell them? You know what many people would do? Many people would not tell them the harsh realities of Christian living. Listen to what Barnabas and Saul told them, saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Encouraging the Philippian Christians that they should not be frightened by persecutions they were undergoing. Paul explained to them in Philippians chapter 1, 29 and 30. He says this, For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same struggle which you saw in me and now here to be in me. Suffering is inevitable. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 2, he says to the Thessalonian church, by way of letter, he says, We sent Timothy, our brother, to, and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one be moved by these afflictions, for yourselves know that we are destined for this. Look, listen to verse 4, he says, For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass and just as you know. On the note that suffering is not contradictory to the salvation, blessings of the Christian, the Apostle Peter wrote to a body of believers in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 to 6. Here's what Peter told these Christians. Peter burst out in praise to God. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfailing, kept in heaven for you. How wonderful, isn't it? He says, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Now listen what Peter says to them in verse 6. He says this, in this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. You've been grieved. You're hurting, Peter is saying. And here in his epistle to the Romans, Paul will later say to the Romans in Romans 8, 17, that if we're children, then we're heirs, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. So you see that right throughout scripture, the truth is reiterated that suffering is part and parcel of what it means to be Christian Becoming a Christian doesn't necessarily mean that one's health will improve. It doesn't mean that one's financial problem will improve, will go away. Becoming a Christian provides no guarantee of material prosperity. The truth is, here's the truth, Christians do experience a broad range of pain and hurts that are associated with life in a fallen, sinful, broken world. 
Christians have a bad time. Christians go through severe illness. And Christians even die tragically. It's no guarantee that when we come to Christ, we are going to be shielded. Why? Because suffering is part and parcel of what it means to be Christian. The Word of God teaches. Now, let me say this, that that's gloomy and that's discouraging. Except if it were not for this truth. And I tell you, one of the things we love about the Word of God is that the Bible is a book of realism. It tells the situation as it is, even though it appears gloomy, But here's the truth. That's not the end of the story. Because the word of God teaches, beloved, that while salvation in Jesus Christ will not, will not necessarily cause our problems to go away, what it most surely does is this. It gives us joy. It gives us the joy of the Lord in the midst of those troubles. Once again, bear in mind, this joy is not necessarily happiness. This joy is not necessarily an emotional high. What is this joy in the midst of trouble? Someone has described it as deep serenity of soul and spirit. It is the conviction, it is the assured conviction that even though the turbulent storms are raging, the boat is tossing and seems to be over, going to be overturned, that Christ is in the vessel and Christ being in the vessel gives us the assurance that he is in control and that we will not be overrun by those challenges and those difficulties. And hence, Jesus could say this to his disciples in the world, you shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. Joy is the knowledge that our Lord Jesus Christ is in control, and that because he's in control, may I say this, every little thing is going to be all right. Being saved through faith in Christ will certainly give us an enormous vantage point. Listen, being saved, while that will not necessarily remove our problems, Notice I keep saying not necessarily because it can. While it will not necessarily remove our problems, here's what will happen for the believer. Salvation in Christ, beloved, gives us an enormous vantage point from which we can navigate and surmount those challenges. For one, it will put us in a position to access the all-sufficient, all-powerful grace of God. Remember, as we saw last week, We have a passage to God, we have access to God into this grace in which we stand and we have grace beyond measure, grace that will enable us to withstand and weather the turbulences of life. Grace that will strengthen, grace that will support and sustain us under the pressures of our troubles so that we can rise above them. The question then is, how does the believer in Christ Navigate the troubles and trials of life. And Paul actually tells us how in this passage, how do we navigate as Christians the troubles, the trials, the tribulations of life? What is the key to dealing with afflictions? What's the key to dealing with trouble so that we do not crack up and go apart, so to speak? And notice, first of all, from our text, verse 3, the key is found in verse 3, and it centers on the word knowing. We rejoice in our sufferings, Paul says, verse 3, knowing that suffering produces this, that, and the other. 
What is Paul saying here? What Paul is saying is that our ability to endure trials, our ability to rejoice in trials and tribulations is very much related to our having, here it comes, an informed, intelligent understanding of those painful situations. Do you know God has told us it's not all a mystery, you know, for the Christian. God has actually told us what suffering. He tells us that we'll go through suffering. He tells us the purpose of suffering and our ability to rejoice in sufferings, Paul is saying, is related to what we know they're doing for us. And here in Romans 5, verses 3 and 4, as we are coming to a close, Paul cites three benefits, three benefits of suffering, the knowledge of which the Christian will be enabled to rejoice in sufferings. And the first beneficial effect of suffering that's mentioned here in our text is this. Number one, it's cultivation of fortitude. It's cultivation of fortitude. Suffering, Paul suggests, results in our ability to be strong and resilient. The best illustration of this, I think, is disciplined physical exercise. Walking it to the gym itself can be painful. We haven't started to talk about the exercises yet. But just a thought. Even before we walk to the gym, the thought of going to the gym can be very painful. At first, the discipline of running, of pumping weights is what? Intolerable. We do it, we are sore. Can I do it tomorrow, man? I don't know. I don't know. And we have somebody, thank God, who can prod us and say, listen, come out to the gym. Come out and come out. Let that go on for a few weeks. And what begins to happen is all of a sudden, you desire. To, you just love it, love it. You just keep a lady was telling me yesterday, in fact, her husband used to drag her to the gym, as it were. And she was able to tell me yesterday, look, I actually start waking him up from five in the morning or earlier, telling him we need to go to the gym. Why? Because she has begun to love it. And here's the point. Paul is saying here, because related to this very idea of experiencing pain, of experiencing tension, here's what Paul says of suffering in the last clause of verse 3. He says this, suffering produces endurance. The Apostle James says very much the same thing in James chapter 1. James chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, he writes, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Verse 3, why? For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. God sends trials, sufferings, tribulations in our lives not to break us down, but to build us up. He sends trials in our lives not to destroy us, but to develop and build us up spiritually. That's the purpose of trial. And Paul is saying to the extent that we know that, to the extent that we know that suffering makes us strong, makes us resilient, we will rejoice in our suffering. Notice that we're not going to rejoice about our suffering, but we are going to rejoice in the midst of our suffering. That's the idea. Now, such endurance, notice, is not, we need to say this, is not a stoic grin and beard acceptance of the painful situation. There are people who are, who are tough, they're called tough. Paul is not talking about the endurance of the Stoics. What Paul is suggesting here, then, as one commentator states, this steadfastness, this endurance, he says, it portrays the attitude of mind which actively overcomes and conquers the trials of life, the quality that enabled Paul and Silas to sing praises 
while confined in prison, their feet held by stocks and their backs bruised and bleeding. He says suffering produces endurance. A second beneficial effect of suffering that's cited here in our text is this. It's creation of character. It's creation of character. Note what Paul says in the A part of verse 4. Continuing with the thought that suffering produces endurance, he then says this. And endurance produces character. In Paul's day, this word that is used for character was used to speak of metals which were put in the fire, which were purified, which were clear of impurities, and hence proven to be genuine, genuine metal. Paul is saying that what suffering does, suffering purifies our lives, suffering builds our character, it creates character within us. And then thirdly and finally, a third beneficial effect of suffering is its stimulation of hope. Continuing with the thought that endurance produces character, Paul says at the end of verse 4, and character produces hope. Someone has said that character is something that is etched into us by the experiences that we have as we go through life. These two words, character, you'll notice, for example, the King James Version says character, and one other version says proven character, and another says experience. And uh, What we find here is that character really comes out of experience. Experience of what? Hardships. Challenges. And the question is, how does character that is born of the experience of suffering produce hope? How is hope stimulated by suffering? And I'll show you how. Suffering, you see, has a way of removing the shallowness from our pursuits and our priorities. What am I saying here? Let a person, for example, who normally measures in material things, finds him or herself in a serious bout of illness. All of a sudden, money is not the issue. The issue is wanting to get well. What we are saying is this. Suffering has a way of changing our priorities. It has a way of changing our pursuits. And as believers in Christ, one of the things that suffering does for us is that it calls our attention to heaven. Because when we are going through dark valleys of pain, of suffering, what do we want? We want release. And immediately our thoughts turn to heaven. We think of heaven, the place of no hunger, no pain, no suffering, no sorrow. God uses suffering to stimulate hope within the heart of the Christian for eternity Our hope becomes grounded then in nothing other than the living almighty God of heaven and the prospect of seeing him someday. Listen to how scripture expresses this truth, 2 Corinthians 4, 17 and 18. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not at the things that are seen but at the things which are not seen for the things which are seen are transient but the things that are unseen are are eternal suffering focuses our attention it removes our attention from the now from the present calling our attention to the future and that is why some of the most godly saints we know are not in church but on their sickbed why heaven becomes more real to them and again this is not pie in the sky god purposely designed suffering so that our hope might be set on him and on heaven. So I close this morning by saying this, that we see from our text then the strengthening, character-forming nature 
of sufferings as Christians. These work toward our becoming more vibrant and vigorous in our hope in God and the glories that are to come. To those of you who might be passing through the middle of afflictions, through the fires of testings, of suffering, the message to you is this. You need not be derailed. You need not be distracted and defeated by your trials, by your adversities. God's purpose for your suffering is to mature you, is to establish you, is to strengthen you, is to settle you. First Peter 5 verse 10. The key, of course, is that you have the right attitude and have an informed understanding based on the word of God concerning what God is seeking to accomplish through those sufferings. I trust that we would take these matters to heart this morning, that we would rejoice in this glorious salvation, and that even as we do so, the pains, the trials, the distresses of life would not in any way diminish our joy. And let the church say glory to God. Amen.